This week on Wednesday night, my family and I and several others were here on the church campus participating in our kids' ministries event. They were wrapping boxes, as you saw, and uh, there was a lot of buzz and activity here um, uh, on the campus. Lots of excited kids, lots of laughter, lots of fun. But there was also some anxiety in some of the adults' faces. In case you didn't know, something monumental was taking place on Wednesday night <clears throat> in the city of Cleveland. And, uh, of course, we were all about the church, so we were not concerned about those things. If you're not a sports fan or a baseball fan, for that matter, it wouldn't be something that concerns you. And yet, during the uh, evening's events, there were people who were getting updates uh, on their phones and relaying the message. So early on in the evening as we were doing, you know, the right things, little buzz came through the, through the, through the people that are gathered and said, oh, the Cubs are leading game seven of the World Series. Um, you're looking at me with a blank stare, so I'm just going to assume that you know nothing about baseball. Uh, we have this professional team here called the Padres, but y'all don't care about that. That's good. But it turns out that every fall around this time of year, teams from all over the country <laughs> compete in this thing called baseball playoffs. <laughs> and when it gets to the very end, the championship is a best of seven um, event. And this particular championship uh, went back and forth until uh, each team had three wins and they were vying for the seventh. The only reason I'm telling you this is because you probably, hopefully, you heard about it in the news. It made national media. But on Wednesday night, on Wednesday night, the Cubs were leading something like 6-1. to one. I don't remember the score necessarily. They were leading by a lot. And uh, I'm just uh, assuming you don't know anything about baseball. The Cubs, as a professional organization, hadn't won a championship in 108 years, which is a pretty long time. Uh, I'm going to assume before any of y'all were born, unless some of y'all just aged really well and we don't know. So something hasn't happened in our lifetime and uh, something very monumental for the city of Chicago, but for sports fans. But here's the funny thing about it. When they were winning 6-1, to one, uh, there was like a lot of relief people because it looked like they were going to win. It looked like the drought, 100-year-8 drought was over uh, for, for sports fans, especially for Chicago sports fans. So we were here on the campus, and of course, I didn't pay attention to that because, oh, well, I'm a pottery fan, but that's beside the point. The point is, we sort of took it as a foregone conclusion. We wrapped up here at the church. It was late already after 8. We locked up, and we went home. And by the time I got home, uh, my wife beat me there, and she had the TV on, and my wife is not a sports fan, but she was watching this game. As it turns out, the Cleveland Indians had battled back, and uh, they had tied up the score. So it went to extra innings, and like I said, you don't know anything about baseball, but usually it ends at nine innings, and if you're tied, they just keep playing until somebody wins. And they went to extra innings, so I walked into the house, and my wife was watching baseball, which, like I could tell you, never happens. And on the screen, you could see people's faces. They were anxious and nervous, and it was such a, a, a tense-filled moment. 108 years worth of waiting, and they were about to win, and suddenly the other team came back, and the, the score was tied. I don't remember for 6-6, six, 8-8. Six, eight, eight. I don't remember. Anybody know? 6-6? Six, six. 
and there they were, and uh, uh, and and they would they would show faces in the crowd, and people were just like anxious and nail biting, and everyone is sweating. And um, I remember thinking, I don't care about that. And I went to help my daughter with her homework. And out of the corner of my house, I hear my wife yelling, oh, hey. And I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> what is going on? So the, the Cubs hit two extra runs in, and now it's eight to six. And the top of the 10th inning, something like that. And so I go, what are you doing? She's like, this is incredible. You're not going to believe this. So much anxiety, so much drama, so much theater. In the bottom of the 10th inning, the Indians got to run in. And it was 8 to 7, and there was men on base. It was so incredible, and people were so nervous, so anxious. It was fascinating to watch. The next day, they called it one of the greatest games ever in terms of baseball and probably all professional sports. And millions and millions of people across the world watched this and here in, in, in America many 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 were relieved all their anxiousness finally put to rest the Cubs have won the series and when they won they ran around if you saw if you saw they run around they don't know what to do with themselves the story is some Cubs fans waited this was in the news in the USA Today. Uh, some Cubs fan waited for their last breath, and just a few hours after the Cubs won, they passed away. You heard about that? It's just extended their life for a little bit longer just to watch the Cubs win. It, was, it, it made national news. But as I was watching, of course, not interested because I could care less about the Cubs, Padres fans. But as I was watching, it just amazed me how much our lives is filled with drama and how much we crave it. You with me? You with me? We, we sort, we're sort of drawn to it. I mean, most of our entertainment is built on this concept of creating tension and drama. But at the same time, in our own personal lives, aren't we just tired of it? Right? Like, we want it to entertain us. But we don't really want it in our personal lives. It got me to thinking, see, because this week I've listened to people and sat with people and talked with people. And we don't need professional sports to, to raise the intensity of our lives. All of our lives are full of anxiety-filled moments. Moments where we are cringing, wondering what's going to happen next. Moments where we've been waiting for an answer, waiting for a solution, waiting for something. Moments where we don't know what the next moment will hold. Most of us live in anxious, anxiety-filled moments. We don't need drama on TV to make it so. It's like our lives are driven by this, by this tension, the creation and the hopeful release of tension. And I found it very disturbing this week as I listen to people, I meet with people, how oftentimes we are filled with such anxiety that we don't think it's ever going to let up. And this has been weighing on me. And to be honest, dealing with my own anxiousness, the things that I worry about, I went to God and asked God for help. And I prayed and asked God that he would... I said to him, my people need hope. And God sent me to 2 Corinthians. And I want to invite you to go there with me. There's a Bible in a pew in front of you or in your smartphones. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read, and I invite you to read along. 
So I believe that God has something he wants to share with you today from his heart to yours as he has shared it from his heart to mine. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll read, you follow along. God says, I mean, the, the Second Corinthians says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is writing a letter. This is how he begins. This is his, his dear church of Corinth letter. And then he writes these words, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. I did a little research here trying to understand why Paul would write this letter and why he would start with these words. You see, this phrase that we find here at the very beginning of his letter is a phrase unique to this moment, to this letter, to, the, to, to what's happening right now. He, he uses these words. He says, praise be to the God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses this, this phrase right here, the Father of compassion, or in your version, it might say the Father of mercy. And it's a unique phrase that is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. And Paul is trying to say something. He's trying to communicate something at the very beginning of this letter. And I begin to wonder why. What's he trying to say and why, is he, why does he have to say this? So as it turns out, you were with me, some of you guys, last, uh, last month, as we talked about the first letter to Corinth. Remember we read the chapter on love? Y'all remember that? Where we said... Uh, Milton is patient, Milton is kind, and Matisse almost choked on that one. Y'all remember all that? We read the first uh, uh, epistle, the first letter to Corinth, and in that letter we learned that Paul is trying to address a church that is um, full of conflict. If you, if you know anything about the epistles and you know what's happening here, Paul would travel in these evangelistic missions. He would, he would travel and make the circuit, and wherever he went, he would try to raise up a church, a group of people who would follow the new way, the way of Christ. And he set up a church in the city of Corinth, and he set it up amongst people that were of mixed origin. See, in the New Testament, we have this essential um, uh, division between those who came to believe in Christ but were of birth origin Jewish, like Jesus and most of the apostles, and those who came to believe in Christ but were of birth not Jewish, Greek, Macedonians, different places, Jews and Gentiles. Those that had had the stories in the Old Testament and had the promises of God and those who were new to this idea. And even though the new church is being created where none of this actually matters, the people of the church are constantly making it an issue. And so when we find the church of Corinth in the first epistle, Paul says there should not be any fighting amongst you guys. Why are you guys always fighting with each other? Why is there so much drama with you guys? Why is it always somebody rising up against somebody else? And he goes on to detail in chapter, in 1 Corinthians, how they were using any excuse to create these groups and divisions. 
And they were using any reason to label accusations against one, one another. And Paul says, that's not the way we should do it. Paul says, I'm going to teach you a better way, the way of love, right? So Paul wrote this, this masterful poem about how the way God brought us together, what he intends us to do together, is so different from the way we live outside, from the way the world lives. And he pleads with the church of Corinth to live in the way of love. Love is patient. You with me? You with me? You follow me? You tracking with me? Say amen if you are. Okay. Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not easily provoked. It keeps no record of wrongs. And he says, you should love one another for three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is, is love. And I know some of you guys want to be prophets. And some of you guys want to have the, uh, this gift or that gift. But the one great gift you should desire is the gift of love. You see? He's begging. He's pleading. And he's made this, this really forceful statement. And you'd think that the church of Corinth would have gotten the message. But as it turns out, just a short time later, Paul gets some news from the church of Corinth. And it looks like some things have been fixed, but the main issue is still there. They are still fighting with each other. Do you know what that's like? Do you know what it's like when, when there's a conflict either at work or in your family, and you try to solve it, and people say, okay, don't worry about it, it's all good, but it isn't. Are you with me? You know what it's like when you say to a friend member, hey, I'm really sorry about that. They're like, okay, don't worry about it, it's okay. Let bygones be bygones. Oh, well, just forget about it. But you know that's not really true. You all with me? You know what it's like at work when you do something wrong, you apologize and say, oh, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. But you know that they're just waiting to use it against you. You with me? Yes? Okay, nothing happened to you guys. Man, you guys, where do you guys work? I want a job there. See, the church of Corinth had received this letter and had been read out loud. And, and, and some of the people said, we've been fighting. We need to be friends. We need to be united. And some said, okay, praise God, we will forgive one another. But it turns out that after a short while, the main issue was still the main issue. They still were those who were creating conflict, generating drama. Do you have somebody like that in your life, by the way? And don't turn to the side and, you know, give them the glance. If they're sitting next to you, here's what I do. I just slyly go... But don't look, you know, just whatever. <laughs> don't point them out. But do you have someone in your life who seems to be like a magnet for conflict? Someone who wherever they're around, stuff just goes haywire. And they're always going, I don't know why this person is like, I don't know why. And then you think to yourself, maybe it's you. <laughs> See, there were those kind of people in the church of Corinth. There were a few people, not everyone, but just a few people who would just get people going. They would just, like, use anything to try to get people going. And one of the things that they were trying to do here is they were trying to discredit Paul. You know what they said about Paul? They said, Paul, you're not even a real apostle. You're not even real. You weren't one of the 12. You weren't there when it started. 
You're not really real apostle. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Crazy, right? They're like, Peter was real, but you're just a fake. Can you believe that? They told Paul, they said, you know what? Oh, Paul had written in, in the first letter. They said, oh, I'm going to come by. I'm going to come visit you guys. But, but he didn't come. And so they said, Paul, man, you're such a flake. You said you were going to come, and you didn't come. So I, you're a flake. We can't trust you. Is this how you are with the word of God? They, they would use any reason to try to discredit this leader. And Paul is hurt by that. But worse than that, he knows that the people in the church are hurt by it. Because wherever there is conflict, there is hurt. Right? Wherever there is drama, somebody is suffering. Right? Whenever there's division in our homes, somebody is paying the price, and it's usually the younger ones. Whenever there is fighting amongst the workplace, somebody is paying the price. Whenever there's fighting in the church, somebody is paying the price, and it's usually the most vulnerable. And Paul recognizes that the church at Corinth is hurting. They're in pain. And so when he begins this letter, he says, the God of mercy, the Father of mercies, praise be to God, the Father of mercies, who comforts us so that we can comfort one another. I want you to hear it today with your heart. Because as I've listened this week, as I, as I sense people around me in my own community, I know that there's a lot of anxiety right here in this building. Yeah, some of us have that, I don't know what's going to happen to the U.S. and, and you're going to go vote this next week and who knows what's going to happen and who will be our next president and everyone has doomsday theories this way or that way. We don't know. If you give anyone an, uh, an opportunity to be heard, they'll try to convince you why this candidate is the worst ever or that candidate is also the worst ever and nobody is rated very well. These are the two most worstly rated candidates we've had in our polling history. And everyone's convinced that if we do this and that, everything is going to go wrong. There's a lot of anxiety, right? But that's very different, I think, in my opinion, for the anxiety that you and I have down here about our own personal lives. What's going to happen to you and your family? And as I've listened this week, I know that some of you are carrying significant burdens and you are hurting. You might be in the midst of conflict, in the midst of your own personal drama. So I want you to hear it with your heart. The Father of compassion, the Father of mercies, the God of comfort, He comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble the way God has comforted us. For just, verse 5, for just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ comfort overflows. 
If we are distressed, it is for your discomfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we, in, we, we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. I know Paul's difficult to understand, but here's what he's getting at. He's saying, listen, family, let's just be honest with this. We are in difficult situations right now. I want you to think about what you're facing personally. See, Paul is trying to get us to kind of own up and accept the reality of where we find ourselves. Listen, friends, being a Christian is not a pass to free, easy life. It is an invitation to partner and to join with the suffering of Christ. It means that when we choose this path of following God, we're going to run, we're going to run counterculture to the tidal wave of our current society. And where they say hate and division and, and partisanship, God says love and forgive and be kind and be generous. And it makes you at odds and it makes us vulnerable. And the more you try to follow in footsteps with God, the more wide open you are to the attacks of a hurting world. And Paul says, I know you're hurting. But if you're hurting, understand why. The Father of mercies wants to comfort you. So when I look at that phrase there, the Father of mercies, begin to look at the original language. It, it's not like, it's not this kind of comfort. There, there, there. There, there, there. It's going to be all right. Although that does help. You with me? My son came in crying to me this, this week because he had a wobbly tooth. And he's like, ah, it's the second one. And uh, I can't pull it out because that creeped me out. I tried. I tried the first, with the first one. I did the whole string thing. And I yanked it. Count to ten. What? And I yanked it. And it didn't come out. I just made it worse. It just dangled there. And so he was like, ah, I lost his mind. So I'm like, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> so he comes to me with the second tooth. I know there's nothing I can do for him, right? So what do I do? There, there. That's all I can. Sometimes that's enough. Yes? Sometimes that's enough. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes having someone say, it's going to be all right, is helpful. But sometimes it's not. And what the Bible is saying here about the Father of mercies is not that he simply says, there, 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 it's going to be all right. Though he does embrace us like a father. No, it's very different. See, this word, this word compassion encompasses everything that a father would do to bless, protect, defend, uphold, encourage, and even save his own son. That is what compassion means. That means that Jesus Christ isn't just going to pat you on the head and say, there, there. No, he wants to deliver you from whatever is happening. And he will hug you when necessary, but sometimes he will do more. Amazingly more. Because that's who he is. That's what Paul is claiming here. He is the father of compassion. The father of mercy. He doesn't just feel sorry for you. He doesn't just feel bad for you. He's willing to do whatever it takes to save you from it. Even if it means saving you from yourself. And Paul says, that's the God we love. That is our 
Father. So know then, he says, that when you are in a situation of suffering, it may be so that you can run to dad. Because what we know about ourselves is that we have inside of us uh, 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 like an inborn will to become self-sufficient, independent. Some of us more so than others. We don't want to rely on God. We don't want to need Him. So we constantly try to navigate this world and all its drama with our own hearts, with our own mindset, with our own street smarts. And though we fail miserably, we continue to rely on ourselves and trust on ourselves. But Paul is saying here, you know that sometimes you suffer as a consequence of your choices, but sometimes that very suffering might lead you running back to your father. And when you do, he's not just going to feel sorry for you, but he will have mercy and compassion. More than that, he says, when we suffer, it gives us an opportunity to depend on God and live through a story of faith. And here's why. Look, verse, verse, verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. He talks about the hardships that we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we even despaired even life. He says, we, we were in such a terrible, we thought we were going to die. Indeed, our hearts fell the very sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but learn to rely on God, a God who raises the dead. You believe that? He says, this happened. We had to go through some of these things because we have a temptation to constantly rely on ourselves. So sometimes God has no choice. But what he really hopes is that at some point I realize that I need him. And when I need him, and when I begin to rely on him, he is a God who can raise the dead. He raises the dead. Verse 10, look, look, look. He has delivered us from such a great peril. And he will deliver us because on him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Friends, if you are in a moment of anguish right now, if you're in the middle of some drama, this might be an opportunity for God to deliver you and for you to have a story of faith. Can you hear that? This might be a moment that God is living you through so that you can share faith and deliverance to somebody else. It's the way and the method of God, same as before in the earlier verses where God says through Paul, he comforts us and out of the overflow of our comfort, we comfort others. And he will deliver us and out of the overflow of our deliverance, we can say to others, I may not be able to save you, but I know one who can. I cannot get you out of this mess, but I know one who can because he delivered me. Don't you want that story? Look at what Paul is saying. He makes two very definitive statements. One, he delivered us as in a past. That's a statement of experience. 
See, because our growth in Christ is not just learning about the promises, but also about living a promise. We must have our knowledge meet with our experience. It cannot be separated. Paul says he delivered us. But the second statement of faith is he will continue to deliver us. See that? Too often you and I can only recognize God in the rearview mirror. And that, after some trying, oh, that might have been God. Come to think of it. But what you and I are always reluctant to do is to claim that he will deliver us. But friends, that is the beginning of faith. That is the beginning of hope. That is the beginning of comfort. That is the beginning of peace, to trust in a God, yes, who has a proven track record, but who will act in the future. And when you and I begin to claim that, he gets the glory. You see the difference? But when I live through it, I have to wonder, was that God? Or did I get that job on my own? But when we claim God, like Paul is doing here, any subsequent acts of grace are attributed to him and not me. So I want you to think about, I want you to think about your biggest problem right now. I want you to look inside of yourself, your soul, your spirit, and name it in your mind, in your heart. What's your biggest challenge right now? I know that for some of you guys, it's a financial one. I know for some of you, it's a person, somebody in your life. For some of you, it might be a decision. I want you to think about that right now because I want you to understand that that is where your need is. And I know someone who can help you with that. I know someone who can deliver you from that. See, our biggest challenges, our biggest obstacles are our best opportunities to live faith. Amen. Right? Oftentimes we think we're closer to God when things are going well, but that's not actually true. The gifts of God are only able to be received by those who need them. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter, is only welcomed by those who need comfort. For he cannot comfort those who don't want it. And Paul says it may just be that what you're living through right now is an opportunity to experience faith and to have a story of deliverance. He says, I know that's why I've suffered. I know that that's why I've had to live this so that I can tell you God delivered me. I didn't have to save myself. I tried and I failed, but God delivered me. He saved me. He deserves all the glory. He deserves the praise. It is God. And he says, I put my hope in him. I put my hope in him. So let me ask you, this biggest problem right now, I don't know what it is. You don't have to tell me. What are you hoping will be the solution? More money? More time? What will you hope will solve this problem that you have in you? 
How do you think you'll be able to overcome? What are you putting your hope in? Because we try all kinds of things. But Paul says, put your hope in him. Put your hope in him. The one who loves you like a father. The one who doesn't just feel sorry for you, but will extend to you everything in his being for your benefit, for your blessing. Friends, I've been wrestling with this this week because I think that even as I'm telling you this, there's a part of you and a part of me that struggles with the idea that God wants to bless us. There's a part of you and a part of me that has been sort of like almost inadvertently trained to believe that God is very fickle and that he's just waiting for a reason to abandon your ship. That somehow, if you made one time mistake, God's going to say, nope, can't touch you now. And we live in this constant anxiety, and that's why we worry so much about these situations, because we don't think he can help, or we don't think he wants to. That's why we rely on ourselves. That's why we don't ask for help. That's why we don't trust him. And I I feel convicted this week that essentially that's some of the things that that I'm struggling with in my heart, that I'm constantly trying to find myself valuable in God's eyes. I don't don't know if this is true for you, but I'm just going to tell you. For me as a pastor, the work that I do is something that I struggle greatly with. I want to do a good job. I want to make people happy and proud. And although that might sound like a good thing, sometimes it becomes something not good. Sometimes it gets connected to whether or not I feel like I matter in God's eyes. And for some of you, it might be different. For some of you, it might be what you're able to produce or how successful you're at this one thing, how able you are to, to, to come up with an answer or a, or a solution. Our, our, our sense of who we are is tied up in all kinds of things. That's why we looked and put our hope in those things. But Paul says, put your hope in him. You know why? Listen to these words and just listen here them out with your heart. It's from the same chapter. He says... Because God made you. He made us, you and me. And he anointed us. God chose you. He put his seal of ownership upon us. And he put his spirit as a deposit in our hearts, guaranteeing what the future will bring us. Friends, God chose you. He anointed you. That means he set you apart for himself. He made a decision that you were worthwhile, that you are worth saving. He made a decision to claim you as his own. And I struggle with that sometimes because oftentimes I try to find my way into deserving it. And I think if I do enough of this, enough of that, maybe I'll gain his favor. But that's not necessary for God has put his seal of ownership on me. I belong to him and you do too, whether you recognize it or not. He put a seal with his own blood on you and said, you are mine. You belong to me. I am your father. 
and I love you and I want to comfort you and bless you and protect you and guide you. I know you're in deep trouble. I know you're looking for a job that no one seems to have to offer. I know you need money. I know you're hurting. I know your family is on the verge of breaking. I know you're struggling with a decision. You don't know the outcome, but I am your father. You are mine. And I want to bless you. You don't have to earn my favor. You don't have to work for it. And you don't have to prove that you deserve it. I want to bless you. I want to save you from this moment. Whatever it is, so that you know my heart. And when the time comes, so you can tell somebody else, I have a father, and he wants to be yours too. And the same way he loved me, he will love you. The same way he got me through this scenario, he will get you through yours. And the same way he healed me, my wounded heart, he wants to heal you too. He is my healer. He's my father. He had mercies for me. And he has them for you. If you're struggling, if you're wondering, if you're wrestling, full of anxiety and uncertainty, I want to ask you to just in this moment, close your eyes, just close your eyes wherever you are. It's not about who's watching. I just want you to listen with your heart to God. If you're struggling and you want blessing on your life, you want deliverance, you want to be able to claim for yourself, my hope is in you, Jesus Christ, then talk to him right now. Tell him that problem. Tell him that person, that scenario. Tell him that thing. Give him an opportunity to save you. Tell him, God, this is the thing. Save me. Deliver me. I put my hope in you. Heal me. Comfort me. If that is your wish, wherever you are, would you please just stand? If that is your wish, if you want to bring that, whatever it is, giant, small, yours and yours alone, if that's your wish, just stand where you are. If you want to lift up to God this moment for yourself or maybe even for somebody close to you, whatever that is, just stand where you are. Our worship team is going to begin singing our closing song. And as they sing, I just want you to talk to God and claim him as your father. The father of mercies who has mercy for you today. The father of comfort who has comfort for you today. The deliverer who has deliverance for you today. The one who chose you, anointed you, and put his seal of authenticity on you. His seal of ownership. Your father. If that is your wish, tell him about it. Ask him for it. Ask him for what you need. Tell him and proclaim that he will keep his promise. The Bible says in Jesus Christ, all the answers are yes. Yes, yes, yes. 
ask him as we sing.